0: Starting today, we're taking worship to Corinth for the summer. The letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian congregation will be our primary readings, with texts from the Gospels or, today in today's case, the book of Acts, lending support to the themes that Paul addressed to this unique congregation. In our disciple Bible study class, for the last three months, we have been reading the letters of Paul, and we have one month to go. For me, our study has brought Saul the Pharisee from Tarsus, turned Paul the Servant of Christ, into a more robust, three-dimensional figure, who is a little less appalling and a little more appealing than before this study began, because I will be honest, I don't spend time with Paul if I don't have to. I have a gospel bias. I would much rather read the words of Jesus than any other part of the New Testament. In my informal and very unofficial survey of women in church, particularly pastors who are women, we say very similar things. We love Jesus, who clearly loved women and called them and believed in their gifts for ministry. We don't look very kindly on Paul. But thanks to the disciples class, here is what else I need to say. I am learning that Paul is more than these literal reading of his clobber passages about women being told, be silent in church. Breaking that rule. These passages where Paul doesn't challenge and even seems to support slavery. These passages where he urges submission to human authorities and he uses harsh language about the Jewish people. And I do think that Paul would be shocked and grieved and even angry to see how his words have been twisted to support the marginalization, the silencing, the enslavement, and the violence towards various peoples and groups over the centuries, and even still today, in the name of Jesus. I think Paul would be appalled at how his words have been used today. And so these are some of the things we've talked about in our disciple class We've had some incredible conversations, and we wanted to bring the conversation to worship on Sunday morning so we could all join in in this journey of discerning what the Spirit is saying to us as a congregation now. So it's at their encouragement and nudging, Ruth and James in particular, that we're taking this off-ramp into the world of Paul and the Corinthians for the summer. And so, as we do this, it's important to keep in mind three things. First, that with the exception of Romans, Paul wrote to churches he had relationship with. He knew their names. He knew their faces. He knew the stories and the histories of the people that made up those congregations. He'd spent 18 months with the Corinthians, so he knew all their stuff. That's long enough for everybody to get over the good behavior when a traveling preacher comes to town. They could be real together. Paul knew them and knew them intimately. Their gifts, their growing edges, and his writings reflect a focus placing these particular issues within the context of Christ and the power of the cross. Second, Paul did not know that his letters would be read in 2019 by Protestant, Baptist, Christians in Hendersonville, North Carolina. He didn't know he existed. So we're reading mail that wasn't sent to us. That's really important. We're reading someone else's mail. But nevertheless, we can learn more about us through these writings and discover what the God who created the universe and came to dwell on earth in the person of Christ, and who gave us a Holy Spirit to advocate and guide us, what that God is still speaking to us today. So given these two points, that Paul intimately knew the people in the Corinthian church, and wrote to them as a spiritual advisor and guide, I invite you into a spirit of holy curiosity. And openness. Openness to being moved by the relationship between an apostle and people. But more importantly, to be transformed. That all of us would be transformed as a congregation because of our individual relationships by and with Jesus Christ. For that is what Paul encouraged all the churches helped bring into being to do. Become closer with God through Jesus. And when you get closer to God through Jesus, you get closer to the people around you. So 1 Corinthians is actually a response to a letter Paul received from this congregation that we don't have. That letter is lost to history. So what we have In Paul's reply, are the primary concerns that this congregation had while it was still in its infancy. We have to figure out what the issues were based on what Paul addressed. This congregation was as diverse as the city of Corinth itself. In creating a community among people with such varied backgrounds, Paul was attempting something not many others were doing at the time. This church was composed of rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, unrelated males and females. So this kind of community didn't have the same kinds of normal bonds of ethnicity, language, belief, or family that normally held a community together the differences were so obvious that the challenge was to find the unity that could hold them together. What is the common purpose that transcends economics, education, ethnicity, vocation, gender, and family relationships? Paul lays it out. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of you be in agreement and have no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and same purpose. To do it in the name of our Lord, not the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. To do something in the name of someone else means you're representing that person wherever you are. Your behavior and conduct either reflects well or poorly on the person in whose name you act. In that way, that person's reputation and character is connected to yours. Thus, Paul doesn't say, in my name, or in the name of Peter, or in the name of Apollos, be in agreement. Because that's a human standard for what agreement looks like. Paul says, do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, Paul, and Apollos were teachers of a greater purpose and pointed to that greater unity in Christ. There was no quarrel or disagreement among them. Though they each came to believe in Christ in their own unique ways, their focus was on confessing Christ as Lord. And proclaiming the power of God through Christ's death and resurrection. So Paul's point is that if you're following Christ, that just simply excludes following anyone else. Being of the same mind and same purpose as Christ frees the Christian from being labored with the burden and the division that comes with following other people. But Paul also makes clear that singleness of mind and purpose doesn't erase differences or condemn diversity. We will read next week about the wonderful diversity of gifts and abilities that make up this body of believers that Paul celebrated. But this singleness of mind and purpose does eliminate spiritual cliques. See, those aren't new, thank goodness. These spiritual groups who have their own preferences and ways of doing things in this church. Paul says, be wary of that. Stop doing that. Don't put the way you think the church should function over and above faithfulness to the message of Jesus. This is unity in diversity or uni which acknowledges that by Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus has bound us to himself and reanimates a body of believers made up of different gifts and ministries. And everyone's function is to make recognizable the body of Christ in the world. You do that as Christians by being of the same mind, And the same purpose. Paul emphasizes the necessity to speak and to act so that no one will doubt to the Corinthians. You are brothers and sisters, you are siblings in Christ. Now, pursuing unidiversity is hard work. It was hard then, and it's hard now. It's probably harder now, actually. Because we've become so accustomed to the divisions. We've been accustomed to a divided church that we just simply accept that's how things are. We've got different denominations. And then there are differences within denominations, of which I think Baptists are exhibit A. (laughs) And then, of course, there are the differences within churches as we talk every week in disciple class about our human condition. We recognize our human condition is to operate from our own ideas, interests, loyalties, or our own inclination to seek our own advantage and to defend our rights. We rely on our knowledge and logical reasoning to get us where we think we should be. And we humans are pretty good, particularly in America. Very educated, very independent. We're very good at figuring out how we can work together to achieve a goal. But we're not always good at figuring out how to simply be together. We're not always that good about learning one another's stories sitting and listening to people who maybe give you way more details than you want to know, but letting them share who they are and what the power of God is doing in their lives. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or us just to accept this is how things should be because they've always been this way. All too often, And I am definitely guilty of this as well. There comes a point when our own knowledge and logical reasoning tends to override the greater importance of experiencing grace. It's the mystery that I have a hard time with. I like to read about them, like mystery books, but there's always a solving at the end. You know who did it. You aren't left hanging. But God's grace, gosh, leaves me hanging a lot. I don't know about y'all. It doesn't compute because I can't figure out how I need to earn it. It's hard to just receive this gift of grace that comes because God loves us and delights in us and has given us all that we need to be faithful to the life God has called us to. Grace is not something we learn. It's something we experience, something we cannot control. Grace moves us to a place where we recognize we need something that we don't have and that we can't get it on our own. In my experience, the grace of God is experienced in vulnerability humility, even weakness. I think that was Paul's experience as well. He says he deliberately does not use fancy language or eloquent wisdom, but just preached simply so that the cross of Christ could not be emptied of its power. Proclaiming the power of the cross seems foolish, Because a Jewish messiah would never be humiliated by crucifixion. And in logical Greco-Roman understanding, it's impossible for a person who dies to be raised from the dead. Yet, the cross is the expression of God's love and grace that exposes strength and wisdom in being vulnerable, humble, and weak according to human standards. Truly, in the foolishness of the cross is the power of God at work to reanimate the life's work of Jesus in all who believe. And what was that life's work of Jesus? But to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free and to declare that now, right now, is the year of the Lord's favor. Church, let's dare to be foolish for Christ. To let the Spirit work with our hopes and our dreams, our fears and our failures, our faith and our doubts, our desire to come together for something more, and our differences over what that might look like. To let the Spirit work in us so fully and freely so that everyone we meet will know that we are siblings in Christ and will experience the power of God at work in us, which is the power of love, the power of grace, bringing unity amidst our beloved diversity.